it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, the 19th of September, 2022, a brand new broadcast week. Here on the Guy Benson Show, I'm your host, Guy Benson. If you don't know me, maybe new to the program, a special welcome to you. I'm the political editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor, host of this fine program every weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Then around the clock for free on our podcast, all the information related to the show and to the podcast available at GuyBensonShow.com, G-U-Y-B-E-N-S-O-N Show. You can also follow us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, at Guy Benson Show. It's the same handle on both of those platforms. I am coming to you live from northern Wisconsin. I mean, we are way up here, and it is beautiful, really gorgeous. And, of course, this is ground zero for a couple of really important elections in November. The Senate election, the gubernatorial election, we've talked about them here. We've had... The candidates on the Republican side, Tim Michaels for governor, Ron Johnson running for re-election as U.S. Senator, and the balance of power in the U.S. Senate could be determined partially, if not significantly, by what happens here in the Badger State. So I'm thrilled to be back here in the upper Midwest, here tomorrow as well, for the program. On today's show, here's what we've got. Well, we mentioned that key Senate race here in Wisconsin Another huge one, probably top three in my mind nationwide, is Nevada. Adam Laxalt is the Republican challenging Senator Cortez Masto. Laxalt's been on the show. He's back today coming up later on this hour. Britt Hume, senior political analyst at Fox News, he will join us in our next hour. Looking forward, as always, to chatting with Britt. And then KT McFarland will talk with us and analyze foreign policy. I'd like to ask probably Britt and KT as well about their reflections on the life and legacy of Queen Elizabeth II, who died recently at the age of 96. Her funeral was today. I know a lot of Americans watching this morning will have a little bit of sound from that, and we'll get a bit of reaction as well over the course of today's program. As we begin... I was tempted to open again with the border crisis and the Martha's Vineyard saga, which continued over the weekend. And part of it is galling and frustrating and quite annoying and obnoxious. Some of it is actually funny. The self-destruction that the left, they have certain impulses that are self-destructive. And I think it comes from laziness and arrogance sometimes where Democrats in the media sing from the same songbook. And they are so far out of touch with the public that they get themselves into trouble or even deeper trouble than they otherwise would be. I think that's what we're seeing on this issue playing out right now as we speak. I think it is benefiting Republicans politically. I have some data to back that up. We will get to that in our next hour at some length. Some sound bites, too, that you don't want to miss. Trust me in our middle hour here on the show. But I wanted to open today, ultimately the decision was, President Biden 
as we've talked about, had not given a broadcast interview, like a sit-down, one-on-one, proper interview, to an on-air outlet in the United States since before last Super Bowl, early February. So he finally crawled out of the hole and gave an interview to CBS News 60 Minutes' Scott Pelley, and that aired yesterday. It aired last night. And there were a few things that Biden said that garnered some attention, one of which has to do with foreign policy, China, and Taiwan. And I will get KT McFarland's take on that. Biden yet again saying if China attacks Taiwan, yes, the United States military would defend Taiwan. Now, you know, I'm very pro-Taiwan, extremely hostile towards the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, and the regime in Beijing. I also am curious about whether that is our new policy, that the U.S. would defend Taiwan militarily against a Chinese invasion, given the fact that every time Biden says something like this, as he did yesterday, almost immediately the White House says, well, no, our policy hasn't changed. What is going on with this? Is this deliberate? Three times doesn't feel like an accident, but it's also Joe Biden. We'll see what KT McFarland has to say about that, what her thinking is on this coming up in our final hour today, just after 5 o'clock Eastern. For now, we will focus on some of the domestic policies and politics that Biden talked about. He, of course, had a bunch of self-serving claptrap and nonsense about how personal and ugly politics has gotten and how oh, he's got Republicans who secretly agree with him on everything, but they can't vote with him. This is a story that he loves to tell. Barack Obama would do the same thing. Oh, yes, this, all these Republicans secretly agree with me on all these policies, but they're too afraid of getting primaried or whatever. And he's just tired of all the name-calling and the vitriol and the ad hominem attacks. This, of course, from the guy who famously said that Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan would put people back in chains, black people, back in chains. He said that to an audience, primarily black audience in Virginia, back in 2012 during that election, who has suggested that people who disagree with him on voter ID, for example, and common sense electoral reforms are taking the side of Jim Crow, Jefferson Davis, Bull Connor, right? That's this guy that we're talking about, who gave the angry speech in Philadelphia about, what, semi-fascists and threats to democracy. I just feel like you can't be one of the main gladiators in the vitriol and then step back and bemoan the vitriol. Pick a lane. And maybe he just sort of sometimes forgets which lane he's in. But he can't have it both ways. On the economy, on inflation, the number one issue facing Americans, we got that really bad inflation report last week, unexpectedly bad for a lot of the experts, including left-leaning experts. Here was part of the president's exchange back and forth with Pelley from CBS on that cut 11. Let's put this in perspective. Inflation rate month to month was just, uh, 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 just an inch. Hardly at all. You're not arguing that 8.3 is good news. No, I'm not saying it is good news, but it was 8.2 or 8.2 before. I mean, it's not, you're, I can make it sound like all of a sudden, my God, it went to 8.2%. It's, been, it's the highest inflation rate, Mr. President, in 40 years. I got that. But guess what we are? We're in a position where for the last several months it hasn't spiked. It has just barely, it's been basically even. Oh, it's just, what do you say? It's just up an inch, hardly at all, 8.3%, groceries up almost 
18%. He's talking about month over month, year over year. It is way up. The cost of everything is up. By the way, gas prices have come down a little bit. No thanks to him. Or virtually no thanks to him. And despite that price easing for Americans at the pump a little bit, and the worry is it might go back up, but for now, even though that's come down, inflation has still gone up. Core inflation rising last month, month over month. Of course, way up year over year. And Biden's like, oh, you have to have perspective. It's basically just only gone up an inch. I feel like that might make it into some ads. Inflation being the way it is, compared to last year, for example, when they all told us no inflation. Oh, no, we're going to spend us into oblivion. All these trillions in spending, don't you worry, it will not be inflationary. No one I know is worried about that, said Biden, even though someone he knows well, Larry Summers, was blowing the whistle, warning anyone who would listen. Biden said, nope, don't worry. No one's worrying about that. It's going to be fine. Then it finally arrived. It was transitory. We can all say it together almost in unison. Transitory. And now here we are saying, well, guess what? Uh, It hasn't really spiked that badly in recent months. It's just gone up, you know, an inch. Out of touch. Tone deaf. I understand that some of this is out of his control. Some of it is not. Some of this is the pursuing, the blind ideological pursuit of left-wing agenda items, no matter what the ticket price is, price tag, and no matter what the inflationary risk was, they were going to do it because they had the power to do it. And now, chickens coming home, they don't really have a great argument. They passed the Inflation Reduction Act that doesn't reduce inflation. In fact, it increases deficits for years to come. And then the first big inflation report comes out, and inflation got worse. And the President of the United States says, well, you know, it only was up an inch. And at least it hasn't spiked even more. You might say, well, what else can he say? Does he have anything else better available to him rhetorically? Because on substance, the substance is so bad. I would just say, when you're losing, sort of own it and channel the pain of the American people. Talk about how unacceptable it is and you understand how awful it is. Instead, he's kind of trying to spin this story about how it's really not so bad, which is the worst thing he can do, politically speaking, which is why I'm thrilled that he's doing it. I mean, this is probably why they don't have him give a lot of interviews. Or at least they could maybe, like, hand him a piece of paper beforehand that says, you sit down, you look at Scott Pelley, you smile, you answer question. And then somewhere on the to-do list, right, the instruction sheet, they can tell him, show pain, right, the Bill Clinton thing, I'll feel your pain, like that kind of thing is annoying, but at least it's a little bit more effective politically than whatever this is. Kind of defiant, rambling, it's not so bad, when as Pelly, to his credit, interjects saying, Mr. President, it's the highest inflation in 40 years. Right, which was roughly half a lifetime ago for President Biden. He's like, I got it, but it only only went up an inch. It hasn't spiked. What's the big deal? It's basically even. Tell that to families struggling every single month with the cost of almost everything going up, slamming them. Food, groceries, electricity, rent. 
brutal. So the White House, we know they were very excited last month when the month-to-month inched down a little bit on inflation, still right around a 40-year high. But they were thrilled. They were out there. Remember their line was, uh, inflation was zero. We have zero inflation. Just like when they tried to claim that Build Back Better, which was $5 trillion, would cost zero dollars because it was paid for, even though it wasn't. <laughs> right? This is, this is the math that they do in their head, and it just comes flying out of their mouths, and they just decide to go with it. So this was you know, part of the spin that we got from them. And they were celebrating last month. They held a celebration event on inflation reduction last week, the literal day that the horrible report comes out. So their timing is bad. I think some of the judgment is bad. And yet, in response here in Cut 12 to a question, here's Joe Biden basically potentially making the exact same mistake again. Cut 12, listen. Is the economy going to get worse before it gets better? No. I don't think so. We hope we can have what they say. A soft landing, a transition to a place where we don't lose the gains that I ran to make in the first place for middle class folks being able to generate good paying jobs and and expansion. And at the same time, uh, make sure that we uh, uh, we are are able to continue to grow. Oh, we had negative growth, negative GDP growth, contraction the last two quarters. Quarter three was supposed to be some some gains, some growth. I've seen some of those estimates now revised downward. We know that wages nominally are up, but real income is down because of inflation. So he's like, oh, all this progress, all these gains that we're making, we've got to keep building on them. A lot of people aren't feeling like there's progress and gains to begin with, Mr. President. And he says very sort of confidently, no, it's not going to get worse before it gets better. He says, I don't think so. Well, this is, as I just mentioned a moment ago, the same guy who told us that inflation was not a threat and was not going to come after trillions of dollars were spent. And a lot of experts, including Democrat-aligned experts and analysts, were saying, hey, this is a problem. The White House and this president said, nope, it is not. Don't worry. Then the problem materialized, as others anticipated. They told us it wouldn't, but it showed up. They said, don't worry, it's temporary, it's transitory, it's not a big deal. Then it got worse and worse, then they ditched the word transitory. Then we heard multiple pronouncements, different times along the line. We think that it's peaked, and here we are at this peaked plateau, inching up, and the president is trying to spin that as good news. There is no credibility here on this issue. He had a few other things to say of interest during this interview on 60 Minutes, We'll play a few of those sound bites for you as well when we come back. We'll get reaction from Britt Hume later. Stay with us. Just getting started. A new week on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Is the pandemic over? The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's, but the pandemic is over. If you notice, no one's wearing masks. Everybody seems to be in pretty good shape. And so I think it's changing, and I think this is a perfect example of it. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Joe Biden, the president, on 60 Minutes last night. The pandemic is over. 
Well, I agree with him. I think the pandemic has been over for quite some time, which is not to say that COVID is gone or over, but the pandemic and that emergency has been over for a while. And I think it's significant to hear the president say that. There's a lot of people in his coalition who are very invested in the idea that the pandemic is not over. I mean, I was in an Uber yesterday, and the driver was perfectly lovely, but she insisted on having the windows open the whole time. She was wearing a mask in the car, and she had a plastic bed sheet or, like, shower curtain, basically, separating the front seat from the back seat. And then when I got out of the car, she went to the trunk where my luggage was and like sprayed some cleanser into the trunk and was wiping down the trunk because of whatever her conception is of of how COVID spreads, which is, I mean, look, it's her car, it's her, her life, her choice. But it's like some people, the pandemic isn't over, but overall the pandemic is over. It's good for Biden to say it. I think it's helpful. I think it's true. I think it's taken way too long for a lot of people to get there and admit it. There's been a lot of harm done along the way, especially to children, as we've talked about a lot. But it's also very difficult to swallow a correct assertion like that from President Biden when they are still picking and choosing when the pandemic is on versus off. They've got this on versus off switch on the COVID pandemic. It's off on Title 42, so they can stop those expulsions at the border, one of the few remaining tools that the Border Patrol has to stem the tide of the border crisis. That's off, which is just a disaster at the border, but that's the way they're justifying it. But on other things, it's still on. The emergency is still with us. In fact, just a few weeks ago, the COVID emergency is part of the reason that they justified this, I think, flatly illegal power grab with this outrageous student debt, quote-unquote, forgiveness scheme paid for by the vast majority of American taxpayers who don't have college debt to bail out many of the middle, upper-middle-class people with college and grad school debt. One of the ways that they had a fig leaf to do that legally, we'll see if it stands up, is to talk about hardships caused by the ongoing pandemic. Well, if it's over, how does that jibe with the legal defense for these other emergency powers that they're still executing and they're still invoking? I wish someone would ask him that about, you know, about that. Maybe he'll do another interview 10 months from now or something. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll take a break. Adam Laxalt from Nevada coming up. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We continue. It's the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. Thanks for tuning in. Broadcasting from Wisconsin today and tomorrow. Very glad to be here in the Badger State. But let's turn to the Silver State and a crucial Senate race out west. I think it is probably one of the two or three most important races in the country. 
when it comes down to control of the upper chamber in November. And the Republican nominee for Senate out there has been on the show before. He's now back. Adam Laxalt, who's the former AG of the state. He wants to become a U.S. senator. He's running against the incumbent Democrat, Catherine Cortez Masto. And Adam, it's great to have you back on the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. All right. How are you feeling about the state of the race? I've seen a couple polls that have you slightly down, a couple polls that have you tied, a couple polls that have you slightly ahead. From your perspective, where do things stand? Yeah, let me first just say uh, the Democrats certainly know that this is the most important swing race in the country. Chuck Schumer is spending more on Catherine Cortez Masto than any other Democrat in America. And then the senatorial committee on the Democrat side is spending more on her. They're trying to revive her lagging polls. She sits in the low 40s after being in public service for decades now with with nothing to run on. And so we feel very good about the position we're in. We took a lot of incoming fire all summer long, as I'm sure you reported on all these Senate races with the lopsided spending. And nonetheless, Uh, We were ahead in Emerson last week, which is typically a left-leaning poll, and Real Clear Politics has us ahead on the average of polls. And so we feel that we're exactly where we need to be and everything we've done. I mean, I've been doing this since August, Um, and yes, I had a primary, but everything we've been doing was preparing to beat Catherine Cortez Masto, and uh, all this work has come into fruition, and we're right where we need to be. It does seem like, and I know one of the journalists, the prominent journalists out there, John Ralston, uh, who by no means is a conservative, but he has been uh, an observer of Nevada politics for many years. And he's been sort of sounding the alarm for Democrats now for months about some of the shifts on the ground in your state on voter registration, for example, and, and party alignment, where Republicans have been closing the gap. I mean, it is a a closely divided state to begin with, and to see some of those registration numbers moving the direction that they have, that I would imagine is another sign that you guys are seeing that perhaps there's some sort of groundswell happening out there where this year could be different than some of the past years where Republicans have come up just short. Yeah, here's why people should be optimistic we're going to win this race. First and foremost, Joe Biden is at 37%. And so all the bad numbers that people are hearing about across the country We're at the top of all these bad lists, 15% inflation. We're still over $5 gas. Uh, So so the main thing that's driving the electorate, she is way underwater. Of course, the border and law and order issues as well. Uh, As far as what's happening, the trends on the ground, I have to remind people all the time, Donald Trump lost Nevada by two points, two points in a year where, you know, more Democrats turned out than the Republicans. And it was a slightly blue year. It was a dead even race. And so, Are we to the right of 2020? The answer is absolutely. There's no question. And what else is going on on the ground? Well, you know, the Harry Reid machine is not what it was many cycles ago. And because of COVID over the last two years, we are seeing massive influx of Republicans over over Democrats coming into the state. They were fleeing from California. And by the way, uh, we weren't much better. Um, we were a shutdown state. We had a blue state governor. Uh, but, but it tells you just how bad California is, that people finally waved the flag and couldn't do it anymore. And so, yeah, we are three to one registration, incoming registration over the last 18 months. And they usually are up 5 percent 
on registration. It is now 2.5%, the lowest it's been since 2010 or 2012. And so all these things combine to show we are in a red year. We are running the campaign we need to run. We are going to flip Nevada. This is going to be the 51st Senate seat. I mean, it's, I think at this point, starting to become a must win. Like, I kind of do the back of the envelope math. And if the Republicans can, if, it's, I'll just underscore, if they can hold on to seats in Ohio, North Carolina, Florida, Wisconsin, and or Pennsylvania, let's just say Wisconsin for now for the sake of argument, they'd need to flip just a handful, two seats, to barely gain a majority. I think Georgia looks like one that could possibly happen, maybe Arizona, uh, and just circled near the very top of that list is Nevada. You mentioned a couple of the issues that are driving the conversation, and now you know, you've been outspent, you've been hammered, they're spending huge just gobs of cash against you. Uh, and you referenced this, that's been the case for a lot of these Republican campaigns. Democrats uh, have been the big money party this cycle by far. But now you're at least in a place where you can uh, have the resources to punch back and to fight back. What are the top issues that you're hearing about from voters? And then what is the case that you're prosecuting against the incumbent uh, as you kind of enter this home stretch of a campaign where it's like crunch time here? Well, it's amazing to be on the trail uh, and actually experience just how far these Democrats will go to paper over their record. I mean, they, they absolutely run as moderates and centrists, but she cannot run away from her record. As I like to remind people, her vote on the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, of course, I put that in quotes, uh, wasn't even up for debate. She's a guaranteed in-the-bank vote for Joe Biden every time he needs her, anytime he wants to push transformational legislation on our state and on America, she's right there. 100% she's voted for all the financial bills, all the spending, the border stuff, uh, the law and order issues. Everything. And so uh, that's our main, our main thing is this. Don't be deceived, Nevada, with all the money and all the lies. She is a rubber stamp for Biden. And if you're happy with Nevada, where we are headed today, then sure, you should vote for her. If you think we're heading in the wrong direction, which about 70% of Nevadans feel that way right now, then we need a change. We need a check on Washington and a check on Joe Biden. And, you know, the border's a massive issue made bigger by the uh, absolute meltdown by the sanctuary, sanctuary town of Martha's Vineyard. Um, and she has done absolutely nothing to stand up for a secure border. And this is a big, big issue. I went to the border guy. I witnessed it. I saw it. It's worse than people see on the one station that will actually cover this stuff. And it is 100 percent preventable. And when voters understand that this is policy that has led us to the brink on all these issues, as long as they don't get away with deceiving our voters, which is why we need support at AdamLaxall.com. I hope people all across the country will help balance the scales. As long as we get to remind voters that everything we're experiencing today is a direct result of progressive policy, we're going to win this race, and, and we could pull out and win this race comfortably. You mentioned your website there, adamlaxalt.com. I'm not 
really in the business of telling people to donate to candidates or whatever, you obviously are more than welcome to do so, and you just have. And I, what I will do is mention this, and you kind of touched on it briefly. I'm not sure if you've seen this over on Twitter. A bunch of these Senate Democrats are using their Twitter timelines specifically on her behalf, your opponent's behalf, trying to get sort of grassroots Democratic activists and voters to donate to Catherine Cortez Masto, where you've got other Senate Democrats from other states, especially, you know, blue state Democrats, essentially doing like a Twitter takeover where they're devoting their social media space to raise money for her. Uh, Number one, obviously that could put you at more of a disadvantage, even more of one that you've already faced in terms of money. So that's why you're plugging your website. On the other hand, you know, you've got money coming in. You've got, you know, McConnell helping you. You've got grassroots people helping you. You've got folks in Nevada donating to you. Maybe some folks listening will donate to you. But just the fact that you're seeing the Senate Democrats mobilizing the way they are on behalf of her to try to pump yet more money into this race to try to prop her up. I mean, obviously, you're not necessarily excited to see even more cash flowing in on the other side. But the fact that they're doing this with uh, a pretty clear sense of urgency and fear, that also has to kind of feel reassuring weirdly in another way. Should tell everybody exactly what they need to know, which is she is the most vulnerable incumbent in America. Uh, Every single ratings agency puts her at the top. And she's at the top because none of your listeners have ever heard of her. And I can tell you, people in Nevada have no idea what she's done in a few decades. And so she cuts this incredibly, you know, low uh, personality and does not specifically drive for any change in our state or have any major wins to go. And so as a result, um, she cannot get herself above 45%. Doesn't matter how much money they spend, how many fake commercials she's running, pretending like she's done a great job. It's simply not getting the job done. And so they are panicked about this race. And I think the map that you've done is correct. I mean, yes, if it's a tsunami red wave, maybe we we stretch this map out and we win a bunch more races. But today, you know, we are the – Herschel Walker and I are the two flip races that have any polls with us ahead. And we have to win both these races to have any chance of just getting to 51. They know that. And they're going to try to buy this race, and specifically in Las Vegas. They're going to try to buy airtime. There is more being spent in October than is ever spent before in our history. We are the second most expensive race in America. There's more money being spent in my two media market, three million person state, than in the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, That tells you how desperate they are to try to save her and salvage her poor record. Adam Laxalt, I did see you respond to this other story as well, and we'll talk a bit later in the show about the abortion issue. I know Democrats want to make this election not just about abortion, but about their version of the abortion story. And they want to frame Republicans all the same way, I think, in a misleading way. They want to run away from and not even talk about what they all support, which is craziness. And your opponent took it even a step further joining Elizabeth Warren into me this this really creepy effort while you've got nationwide pro-life pregnancy centers being threatened and firebombed. These are people who just want to help women make a choice not to have an abortion, to have a child. These are pro-life centers helping people 
you know, have resources to have their babies. They're getting threatened and firebombed by radical extremists. And in that climate of violence and domestic terrorism, Elizabeth Warren has called for the government persecution of these centers, which is way out there and I think extremely disturbing. And frankly, to my surprise, your opponent has joined Elizabeth Warren in this effort, trying to use the government to punish and persecute pro-life pregnancy centers while they are being literally bombed and menaced across the country. I think that partially underscores what you're saying about Catherine Cortez Masto. She is in no way, shape, or form a moderate. And even if you want to call yourself pro-choice, and a lot of our listeners are pro-choice, I'm more pro-life, but if you want to call yourself pro-choice, going after people in good faith trying to help women have their babies, as your opponent is doing, is, I mean, that goes well beyond anything involving choice. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I've been to these centers, and it is shocking. These, these are women simply trying to help other women uh, be able to bring a baby into this world. And so that's one of the big barriers. And these groups are, are doing the Lord's work of trying to provide them basic services so they can make that choice. How anyone can be opposed to that is shocking. Um, but this is where we are. I mean, look, my, my opponent and, and the Democrat Party, they took a big vote, of whatever it was, six weeks ago now, on third trimester, right up till birth, including taxpayer-funded abortions. And so there's no question that she is out of the mainstream on that. Maybe it's 15 percent of Nevadans vote for, you know, believe that we should have third trimester abortions. And as we had to remind our voters all the time, in our state, there was a referendum in place that cannot be changed by a governor and two legislatures. It has to go back to the people. It was 65-35 for 24 weeks. And so the issue is absolutely resolved. And, you know, I've been on the record. I'm, I'm not happy about that. I don't love that it's 24 weeks. But the voters have chosen it, and, and there, we are one of these states where it's gone back to the states, and it is absolutely locked in place. This is all she has to run on. They, she, she tweets about this 10,000 times a day. And as we always point out, she never took a bullhorn to denounce Biden's energy policies. That gave us seven dollar gas. She didn't take a bullhorn to fight for all the small businesses that were shut down by our governor, our Democrat governor in the state. And so, when Nevadans really needed her, she's nowhere to be found. Uh, she's just surely running the cynical political campaign, doing and saying whatever she thinks it's going to take to win this race. The she in that sentence is U.S. Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, a Democrat, the incumbent, extremely vulnerable. That seat is in danger for the Democrats, and the Republican running against her is my guest, Adam Laxalt, the Republican nominee in the state of Nevada. Huge, huge race out there. AdamLaxalt.com is his website that he mentioned. Always appreciate having you, and if we don't talk before November 8th, good luck. We might talk one more time, uh, but keep fighting out there. One more time. That's going to be... All eyes on Nevada and the home stretch. Thanks for having me on. Sounds good. Adam Laxalt here on The Guy Benson Show, back after this short break. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Welcome back to The Guy Benson Show on the live broadcast. 
The bumper song is Beverly Hills by Weezer. I was in Beverly Hills last week. I am in rural northern Wisconsin this week. So very different. It changes scenery. Uh, And I enjoyed my time out in California, although it's always, like, quick for me in California. I can stay for a few days. The weather's nice. You know, it's it's too much. I'm, I'm out. With all due respect to Californians. And then here in Wisconsin, it's just beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. Meantime, in Arkansas, an announcement over the weekend from Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who's running for governor down there, and she's been on this show. She made this announcement on social media, quote, During a checkup earlier this month, my doctor ordered a biopsy of an area of concern in my neck, and the test revealed that I had thyroid cancer. Today, I underwent a successful surgery to remove my thyroid and surrounding lymph nodes, and by the grace of God, I am now cancer-free. I want to thank the Arkansas doctors and nurses for their world-class care, as well as my family and friends for their love, prayers, and support. I look forward to returning to the campaign trail soon. This, This experience has been a reminder that whatever battle you may be facing, don't lose heart. As governor, I will never quit fighting for the people of our great state, Sarah Sanders. So she also included a statement from her personal doctor, her MD, saying that she is cancer-free and he expects her to be back on her feet. Over the weekend, she posted a photo driving home from the hospital and back on the trail. A new poll out, I saw today, I think, has her leading by 25 points down in Arkansas. She is the very heavy favorite to win and become governor. And let's just keep Sarah in our prayers that the cancer is, in fact, gone and stays gone. Keep fighting out there. We are rooting for her on that personal battle and Godspeed, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. We'll break another hour coming up on The Guy Benson Show with Britt Hume joining us straight ahead. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour on the Guy Benson Show. We are in Wisconsin today and tomorrow. Thank you for listening, no matter where you are. We're glad you're here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free on demand after the show. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. On social media, follow us, if you would, Twitter and Instagram, at Guy Benson Show. Fox News alert as we begin this middle hour. The Dow up today at the close. 197 points in the green, ending at 31,019. Joining me now is Britt Hume, senior political analyst at Fox News Channel. Britt, always a treat to have you here. Thanks, Guy. Glad to do it. Before we get into American politics, I was wondering, with the Queen of England being laid to rest at her funeral today, after 10 days of national mourning over in the U.K. and a great deal of interest here in the United States as well, I just wonder, having watched her and her reign for years, obviously not her entire reign, but what are your thoughts on her legacy and what's next for the royals and and the new king? I I wonder if you have any strong feelings or general observations about all of that. Well, I would say that she did a good job of keeping the monarchy in Britain, which is no longer as 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 a source of any real power. 
except by her example and by the example set by the rest of the royal family. Well, she didn't get a great deal of help from the other members of the royal family, That's really. I mean, they, <laughs> uh, but she managed, by virtue of her dignity and grace and consistency, to hold the royal family's place in the British hearts intact. And you could see it today as that extraordinary procession proceeded after the funeral service uh, through London and down to Windsor Castle um, with people lining the streets in depths I've never seen. I was, at, I was over there for the funeral of Diana, Princess of Wales, and the public loved her. And there was quite an outpouring for her, but not like this. Uh, so she did the job, and and as a result, you know that, that was an extravaganza we saw today, uh, and we've seen a week of them, or more than that, and that's not that stuff's not in, you know, not inexpensive, and the fact that the British public seems willing to spring for it is a sign, really, of what she achieved and was able to uh, when it wasn't easy to do. So she deserves a lot of credit for that achievement, and it certainly was an achievement. I think that's well said. Here, stateside, Britt, we finally got a televised interview with President Biden. He hadn't done one since early February, and he sat down with 60 Minutes, and it seemed pretty wide-ranging. It aired last night. I know people are drawing on certain components of it. We'll be talking about Taiwan and China later in the show. We already talked about his, I thought, terrible answer on inflation and the economy a few other things stood out to different people. Overall, what did you think of the interview? Uh, do you think it was a fair, tough interview that he got on 60 Minutes? What do you think of his performance? I thought, actually, he looked good in the interview. He was very, very well lit and shot. Um, and I thought he came across better than I've seen him in a while. Now, look, I, uh, there are things that he said, which were, for example, he kept talking about how not only we reduced the, uh, the deficit, over the last year or so, but we reduced the debt. Well, we most certainly have not. If there's any deficit at all, we are adding to the debt, and we certainly have in the last two years. And and I don't know whether that was because he didn't understand that or because he was trying to spin us, but, you know, there were some bad answers. But overall, he looked good, sounded pretty good, and, you know, he was pretty good-humored. So I think, you know, in in political terms, I think it was probably a net plus for him. Yeah, I think the one... The one issue where I would disagree that it was a net plus because it might make its way into ads for a while is the inflation spin, where he was trying to talk about it sort of as good news and, uh, you know, it only went an inch up and, you know, really not so bad. And, and Scott Pelley jumped back in and said, Mr. President, it's the worst that it's been in 40 years. And he didn't really have a response to that. I'm just surprised that they haven't made a decision in their communication shop at the White House to just lean into the problem, admit that it's a problem, dispute that it's their fault, but really focus on, you know, sharing the pain of the American people and expressing, you know, great upset and and anger and determination on the issue, as opposed to kind of this gaslighting that he keeps insisting on. That, I think, is a really bad answer that might help fortify certain thoughts about him that would be very unhelpful to his party heading into November. That's just sort of my read on it. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I I think, you know, look, I think he's in a deep hole with the public. I think it, uh, you may have heard me say this before, but I think it manifestly, the public took a second look at him after 
uh, pull out from from Afghanistan, mm -hmm. and he hasn't stood in the same way in the public's estimation since. And these problems that have accumulated since have only added to that. So he's in a deep hole. Um, to say this was a net plus for him means that it was better than it was bad. Uh, more, you know, it was more good than bad, but there was plenty of bad in it. Yeah. Meanwhile, there was one question that I know a lot of people were watching where he was asked about his age and his acuity and that kind of thing. And in a very Biden-esque way, he was sort of stumbling and bumbling over his words. But his answer effectively was, just watch me. Look at my schedule. Look at my energy. Uh, you know, just watch me. And the rebuttal coming in from Republicans is, yeah, that's the problem we have been watching. I thought more interesting perhaps than that was a little bit of hedging on this question. This was cut nine about his future ambitions. Listen. You say that it's much too early to make that decision. I take it the decision has not been made in your own head. Look, my intention, as I said to begin with, is that I would run again. But it's just an intention. But is it a firm decision that I run again? That remains to be seen. So, Brett, he's he's not fully committing to running for reelection. Part of that is, you know, there are legal implications once there's an official declaration. But typically I've heard Biden confidants and Biden allies saying, oh, yes, uh, he, he very much is going to run again. This was an intention, but not a definitive answer, uh, not a final decision, it sounds like. I wonder you wonder what you make of the way that he kind of framed that response. Well, I don't think it means very much because I think that uh, the Democratic Party has pretty well decided that he's not going to be their guy. They won't. Not many of them will say it publicly. But you look at these people who are out there, obviously trying to position themselves. Gavin Newsom being the most conspicuous example recently to 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 be the the next the next candidate, and I, I doubt he'll run again. I doubt if he did, I think he'd be subject to being upset. Um, so I think he's, I don't think it matters much what he says about it. I and tend I to agree. It, go I, ahead. You don't go around suggesting you're not going to run, uh, saying you're not going to run, even if you're not, because it makes you immediately a lame duck. Um, and that's, that's never helpful. I think that's right. Uh, and I've said for a while that my expectation is ultimately he will not run again. However... The other point that sometimes gives me pause is if the Republicans end up being intent on nominating Trump again, and perhaps they might, perhaps not, uh, but if Trump runs, which I think he will, and if he's the nominee, which I think he'd be the favorite to be, would there be maybe enough fear of Trump where, despite all of his problems, Democrats might find themselves again where they were in 2020 saying, we don't love this guy. He's already, you know, he's beaten Trump once already. We can't afford to lose to Trump, and maybe that influences the decision back in the other direction. Is there anything to that? Do you think? Well, possibly. Um, I think you know Trump may be the one person Biden could beat um, because I think Trump is. I don't think Trump could could be elected again. Um, he might be nominated, but I don't think he could win again. After all. Um, Trump is the one guy Biden could beat and did. So, you know, I mean, that's possible. But I, you know, and look, Biden's faltering. He's fading. And it's obvious. And it's not going to get better in the next couple of years. Um, so I I just, I, I don't know. I, I don't think he's, 
I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, that's at least a year out. Quickly, Britt, 30 seconds. As you look at the midterm cycle, based on your experience as a political analyst, where's your head at on where this thing goes roughly six weeks from now? Well, I think that the Democrats' um, momentum is likely to fade, um, no matter what people say about abortion, which is, is a factor, no doubt. It is not as powerful as the economic issues with which people are beset now, mm-hmm. um, and it is not a, and it is not much affected by the public's continuing low regard for the president. So I think the Republicans have an advantage, uh, and I've thought for a long time that the one thing that can keep them from winning not just the House but the Senate. Got to leave it there. Brett Hume on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Thank you for listening. Well, over the weekend, NBC News put out their latest poll. And one of the items in the poll shows the generic ballot heading toward November tied 46-46 between Republicans and Democrats. We've explained before why overall that's generally good news for Republicans, a tied generic ballot. But when you look at the issues within the poll, Republicans have some very significant advantages on really big issues. For example, they are at plus 19, leading by 19 points on the economy. They're leading by an even greater margin, 45 to 22, on the handling of crime. Cost of living, which is an inflation measure, they're up double digits there, and they're blowing the Democrats out, for example, on matters of immigration, which we'll get to coming up here later on in the hour. But on a question like abortion, Democrats have a double-digit lead, which is why there are some conservatives and some Republicans out there saying that it was a huge mistake for Senator Lindsey Graham to offer his 15-week abortion restriction with certain exceptions in that bill at the federal level as he did last week. Why not stick to the economy and inflation and immigration and crime on these areas or within these realms where Republicans have a big advantage on some of the issues that are driving the cycle. With the number one question being inflation in the economy, Republicans are up big on that front. Why distract? Why play into the Democrats' hands on abortion? I think that's actually a mistake. I think it's a category error. I think part of the reasons that Democrats have a double-digit lead on abortion on this question is because they're being allowed to define the debate. They are defining the debate, and they're way outspending Republicans on this and spending much more time talking about it. They're defining it as Republicans are the party that wants to ban all abortions all across the country. Democrats are the party that are going to try to prevent them from doing that. So long as that's the way people are thinking about the issue, of course Democrats will have an advantage. What Republicans need to do, I'm not saying they should ignore all the other issues where they have an advantage. They should press those advantages big time. I'm not saying that they should try to turn the election into an abortion election. But you have to respond. You have to fight back. You have to make your points or else the opposition will define your position for you, which is not a recipe for success, to put it mildly. The Republicans can point out that actually across the board, they hold mainstream positions on the issue of abortion, unlike Democrats who, as we have mentioned multiple times, have now adopted almost across the board a truly radical and extreme policy stance on abortion. 
not just hypothetically, but in literal legislation that every Democrat in Congress supported except for two, one in the House, one in the Senate, were against. 99% of them favored abortion, elective abortion, on demand throughout all nine months of pregnancy up until birth for any reason paid for by tax dollars. That is a fringe position that all the polling shows is south of 20% in terms of support. It's 80-20 at best for the Democrats against their position. And Republicans are what, supposed to just sit there silently and not talk about it because, oh, it's an issue that might benefit the Democrats? It only benefits the Democrats if Republicans shrink from the fight and cede the battlefield on this issue, which I think would be very foolish, especially because there are, I would say, potent counterpoints to be made. What Lindsey Graham has done with this bill, a 15-week limitation on abortion, he has introduced legislation that is squarely in the mainstream in terms of U.S. public opinion, based on all of the polling that we've seen, and in terms of the global community. The U.S. has been, unfortunately, a grotesque outlier on abortion, much more permissive, much less humane than almost the entire world, with exceptions like China and North Korea. It's not good company that we keep on this front. If Graham's bill somehow became law, it won't right now. President Biden would veto it. He's become an extremist on this. The House Democrats wouldn't take it up. But if it became law, the U.S. would still nationally have more permissive abortion laws than France. Poll after poll shows that a 15-week ban on most abortions, with a few exceptions, is widely popular. And there's a brand new survey making this point. It comes from Trafalgar. They asked the American people sort of a choice, a choice between the Democratic position and Lindsey Graham's bill. The Democrat position is described as a federal law that says women have the right to abortion at any time during pregnancy and would prevent individual state limitations, which is what the Democrats' bill would do. In fact, that's sort of framing it and describing it kindly. You could add a few more details in there that I think would make it even less popular. But it's at least fairly neutral in the way that it's worded. And that gets about 40% support versus a federal law eliminating abortions for later stage pregnancies beyond 15 weeks, allowing certain exceptions, but would not prevent further individual state restrictions. That has almost 60% support. I think there are ways where you can sort of add some details to both descriptions and turn this into a two-thirds versus one-third supermajority for the Republican consensus Graham position. When you juxtapose and put them side by side, the mainstream moderate actually position that Graham has laid out wins handily over the insanity, the gruesome position that Democrats hold. So I just think it is strategically, politically, and ethically wrong for Republican strategists or certain conservatives and pundits to say just Let's just clam up, avoid the issue, not talk about it. It plays into their hands. It's the issue that they want to talk about. I think, again, to reiterate, go for it on all the other stuff. Economy, inflation, crime, immigration. Don't shy away from any of that. Lead with it. Emphasize it. Batter the Democrats with those points of strength. But to just give up on another issue that might be benefiting the Democrats electorally, 
when there is a counter case to prosecute that's quite good and effective. I just don't think that that is sound politics. To say nothing of the morality, the ethics, the science surrounding this difficult issue. So I just wanted to put that out there and cite some of the new statistics from the NBC poll and then also from this Trafalgar poll to help build that case and fortify it a little bit. And when we come back, as promised, we will get into immigration, some updates on that front, the border crisis, the Martha's Vineyard saga, and some data that I think Republicans will be happy to hear. We'll get to all of that upcoming on The Guy Benson Show next. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through today's show, it's the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. Thanks for joining us. So we've been talking about this for the last couple of programs. The border crisis, which we've been covering, of course, for many months. But this flashpoint in Martha's Vineyard, which really brought the country's attention onto the problem. And this is part of this effort by Republican governors. Greg Abbott pioneered it. Doug Ducey in Arizona jumped on board. Now Ron DeSantis to hold up the mirror to Democrats to force these people who support these disastrous, inhumane, cruel policies to actually experience firsthand at least just a tiny bit of the consequences of those policies. Because what we've seen from a lot of these blue state mayors and NIMBY progressives, not in my backyard, right, is that they are perfectly happy to cheer on effectively open borders or out-of-control borders, so long as it doesn't really impact them, and so long as other people have to bear the burden of it and absorb the cost and the chaos. That's for somebody else to deal with, of course. Not to be outdone, some Democrats in Washington, D.C. have really been going the extra mile rhetorically. There was a member of the city council, we played the clip of her, saying that this crisis was caused by Republican governors, which is ludicrous, and saying that they were trying to turn D.C. into a border town. She was complaining about this. This woman was a big fan of defunding and abolishing ICE. She's also been a big supporter of sanctuary policies, but I think when the rubber meets the road, they're not so supportive of sanctuary policies, if it makes things uncomfortable for them. And when she whined that Republican governors were turning the nation's capital into a border town, it was sort of like, yeah, that's the point. Not even close, by the way, in terms of scope, but that's the point. And what blows me away is that the mayor of Washington, D.C., Muriel Bowser, I guess heard that comment from her colleague and thought it was a good talking point. So she embraced it over the weekend in a local news interview. It was with Fox 5 in D.C. She was asked about this, and Bowser doubled down. I am astounded that she thinks this is a good argument that is not making Republicans point for them. I saw someone joking, are the Republicans paying these people to say things like, cut eight? We're not a border town. We don't have an infrastructure uh, to handle uh, this this type of and a level of immigration to our city. But we will will create a new normal here in our infrastructure and have a, a humane welcome for people and an efficient, um, you know, service provision. But we we don't have the ability. We're not Texas. Ah, the quiet part out loud again. <laughs> 
We're not a border town. We don't have this infrastructure. We're not Texas. The translation is, Texas should be the ones to deal with this. It's their problem. Yes, it's our policies that have caused it, our party that has caused the problem, the crisis of historic proportions. And let the places equipped to deal with it, like Texas, deal with it. Their taxpayers, their officials, their communities, not ours. She paid some lip service there, of course, like, oh, we'll try to develop some infrastructure. They're not going to be able to handle this. She's already called it an emergency and brought in the National Guard with just a few thousand people who have shown up. Like a day or two's worth down in Texas. Why is D.C., this huge cosmopolitan city, the capital of the United States, the seat of power, population 700,000 plus, why are they ill-equipped to deal with this? But what, very small border towns that have been completely overwhelmed, they're supposed to deal with the brunt of it? She's almost explicitly saying it's their problem, leave it to Texas. You can understand why people like Greg Abbott would say that is not acceptable. It has not been sustainable for us this whole time. Nothing we say, none of the photos or images, nothing that we put out there is moving the needle. So maybe literally putting some of that crisis right in your backyard could change the game a little bit, and it has. I think the assumption, and we've heard this now from multiple mayors and governors and pundits, is that Well, Texas deals with this because they're used to it and they're a border state, so they're more prepared and able to handle all of it. I mean, to some extent that's true through no choice of their own, right, especially with a federal government that's been failing so aggressively, so intentionally. It's either do something about it or the dysfunction is completely out of control. So Texas officials have scrambled and tried to ameliorate the problem and mitigate the problem as best they can while getting relentlessly attacked by the Biden administration throughout. But I think this once again betrays a very deep ignorance of a lot of the people who are all for the sort of lefty, permissive, progressive policies down at the border and the Biden administration because they don't have to grapple with the fallout personally almost ever. And as soon as that changes, they start to squeal like stuck pigs and lash out at exactly the wrong people. They never turn inward for introspection. Maybe we're wrong. Maybe our policies are failing. Oh, gosh, now I understand why they're so angry down there. This cannot continue. Let's change course. No, God forbid they do something like that, which is the rational thing to do. The irrational thing to do, the tribalistic thing to do, the partisan ideological thing to do is to say, well, we can't possibly be wrong. So let's just lash out and get angry at the people that we always believe are evil and wrong, the Republicans, and we'll just blame them. There was an interview done on Fox News Digital with a woman living in Eagle Pass, Texas. And this is the type of story that has been ignored by almost everyone in the corporate press for the last two years they cannot be bothered to cover the border crisis except for like a tiny bit here or there particularly when there's a way that they feel like they can score some political points like the fake whipping scandal nine or ten months ago and now the martha's vineyard thing where at least the rubric or the blueprint is something that they're used to right border patrol bad racist Republicans, bad, racist, using human beings as pawns. 
when they have a certain template that is in their comfort zone, then they'll kind of cover it a little bit. But overall, crickets. And everyone sort of chuckles and snickers at a guy like Bill Malugin who's down there just doing his job. What a weirdo. Oh, he's just at Fox doing the Fox thing to appeal to their audience. That's what they think of him. And then just like a little tiny like droplet of what Malugin has been reporting on month after month after month lands in Martha's Vineyard, playground to the elites and the stars on the East Coast, and all hell breaks loose. The journos have been flocking to Martha's Vineyard. What a great opportunity. They get to go cover a story on the company's dime in Martha's Vineyard, where they want to be anyway, and it's an opportunity to dump on Republicans. It's just a win, win, win. So they race up there with not a shred of self-awareness, and they start writing these like hagiographies of the good bien pensants, the wonderful, kind, compassionate, virtuous denizens of Martha's Vineyard. The Washington Post has a story profiling someone who sprung into action to help the migrants once they arrived. Multiple bylines. You've got to really deeply report that story. And uh, by the way, I'm not attacking anyone who did mobilize to try to help in their community, even for a short period of time. But just the amount of positive press, like, look at the selfless goodness of these people. It's just laughable. CNN has this headline in a similar story. Quote, they enriched us. Migrants' 44-hour visit leaves indelible mark on Martha's Vineyard. I love this. You have dutiful progressives in Martha's Vineyard who get to host a slumber party with all the cameras rolling for like one and a half days. And they get to gush and rhapsodize about how the migrants came and they enriched us so deeply. But then I think it was more than enough enrichment. Thank you very much. All right, 44 hours, 36 hours. Yeah, that's enough. Thank you for your enrichment. You've left an indelible mark here. Thank you so much. Take that, Ron DeSantis. And then they were effectively deported, put onto buses, and shipped off the island to become someone else's problem. The amount of backslapping and high-fiving and media ink being spilled and interviews and all this stuff, like the people of Massachusetts in Martha's Vineyard, that enclave in particular, just sort of won the PR battle and ultimately proved that they are truly better, after all, certainly than the grubby, awful people like Ron DeSantis, who set this trap, and boy, do they regret it. And then they kind of just gloss over the fact that in less than two days, the 48 people who were there were sent packing. Like, you don't get to congratulate yourself for being so amazing for handling something for a very discreet, finite period of time and then just handing that ball off to someone else and then it's back to your regularly scheduled privilege on Martha's Vineyard. As I've said before, what might impress me is if they find a way to absorb this and host these people and sustain it with 50 people arriving every day. So 50 more on Saturday, then 50 more yesterday, then 50 more today, knowing that there's 50 more coming tomorrow – for an indeterminate period of time, right? This was just going to become an indefinite status quo over and over again, wave after wave. Then how might the people respond? Then might how the journalists write these stories. Would there be all this triumphalism, or would 
the panic that already started to creep in a little bit like, well, we can't handle this. This is not sustainable. We have a housing crisis on this on this island. They have, what, tens of thousands of tourists every single summer? And now you're in the off-season and 48 people show up. You're like, whoa, hang on. We, where do we put these people? That was one group of less than 50 people. And they treat them nicely and humanely for less than two days. Then off they go. And we've just gotten one round after another of standing ovations from the mainstream media. It's, they can't help themselves. They don't know how to do their jobs properly. They are addicted to this type of sugar high. They see this. It all fires off the dopamine in their brains. It's the type of narrative that they want to share. And even though it doesn't actually look that good, when you look at the context, and it actually starts to feel a little bit embarrassing, they don't know any better. So we're treated to this kind of thing. So I started to talk a moment ago about this Fox News digital story that came out today. This was featuring a business owner in Eagle Pass, Texas. Small business, a family restaurant, been in the business for decades. And she's been forced to sell it because of the border crisis down in Texas. The type of woman, the type of story, the type of ordeal that has been affirmatively shunned and ignored by the press and by the Democrats throughout the entire crisis. And I joked, being a little bit snarky on Twitter, that perhaps this woman that you're about to hear from should fly to Martha's Vineyard, where perhaps she could finally discover a reporter with whom she could share her story outside of Fox. This was a Fox story. They're all up there in Martha's Vineyard covering the border crisis, right? That's where they're at. So Sorry, maybe you have to go up to Paradise in this beautiful island off the coast of Massachusetts to get any of these journalists to pay any attention to you. And spoiler alert, they won't. This is not the type of story that they want to tell, that they want to share. But it's still what's happening. Listen together with me to what Selena Buentello Price had to say to our digital team here at Fox News Cut 7. It just feels like we're completely overrun and we've lost control of everything. At least I know that, that, that here it's, you're helpless. You're helpless. And, and those people that say that we don't have a problem, you come live in Eagle Pass for a few weeks and you'll see it. And you'll understand how awful and insecure it feels. I've been a member of the community for over 50 years. I'm a second generation owner to a barbecue business in town that it's called the wagon wheel. We are off the main highway. I also have a property as well that's been in the family for over 26 years. And I've just not only has my business been broken into and ransacked, it's just the insecurity now, you know, you don't feel safe at home anymore. I worked alongside my father um, for 19 years. One break-in in 25 years. From February to now, I've had five. I, 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 I don't know how to secure my building enough to keep these people away. And so she sold the business. One break-in in 25 years in business, family business. Now she's had five since February alone. The journalists are too busy screaming about what happened in Martha's Vineyard and celebrating their fellow liberals to care at all about stories like that one. That one doesn't count. That's the type of thing. What happens in Texas stays in Texas. 
as far as they're concerned, or at least it should. And how rude and cruel for anyone to suggest otherwise. When we come back, how is this actually playing in Texas? A new poll for Greg Abbott in that governor's race. We'll tell you about that. Plus, Governor DeSantis firing back again. That's next on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We are back on The Guy Benson Show. Right before the break, I mentioned this new poll out of Texas from UT Tyler. It's the governor's race, and it shows Governor Greg Abbott, who really got the ball rolling on all of this, benefiting from this fight over immigration and other factors as well. He now leads among likely voters by 11 points in the poll, nine points among registered voters. So I think this is resonating. It's an issue overall that helps Republicans. We were talking earlier about the new NBC poll. In that same survey nationally, Republicans lead on the issue of immigration by 17 points over Democrats. Specifically on border control, border security, Republicans lead by 36 points. So the fact that Abbott and some of these Republican governors have been able to bait the Democrats finally into talking about this and the media covering the issue when they've been kind of trying to cover it up ahead of an election, it has been, I think, and will be a boon to the GOP. And at least this is one data point in the state of Texas showing that Greg Abbott is benefiting from it now in the ballpark of leading by double digits. Meanwhile, Governor DeSantis, who also coincidentally happened to be here in Wisconsin over the weekend, he talked about this. Here's part of what he said in cut one. One of the biggest failures of the rule of law is happening right now at the southern border of the United States. And until last week, no one was really talking much about it. Now, people are concerned about it. Did you see any spasms from the media because there were all these illegals coming across the border for the last almost two years? No, you didn't hear anything. It's only... When 50 illegal aliens show up at a very wealthy spot called Martha's Vineyard that advertises itself as a sanctuary city, they said they're a sanctuary city. They say that nobody, no human being is illegal. Everyone's welcome. And then within two days, they were gone. So DeSantis, Abbott, and others get credit for the stunt, which has worked, as I've said, far better than I ever expected it would, because the Democrats and the media cannot help themselves. And if this is an issue, the border crisis, that's going to be front and center heading into November, I would say advantage GOP. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. KT McFarland is here about the queen and her legacy, about President Biden's comments on Taiwan, Ukraine, Iran, and more. That's next. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour on this Monday here on The Guy Benson Show, coming to you from rural, beautiful Wisconsin. 
Thank you so much for listening every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And between 5 and 6 Eastern, it's the Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, our friends there. They've become very popular here in Wisconsin and all across the country. Visit them online, thelongdrink.com. You can see where they're sold near you. As they really expand, you can also order online, thelongdrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. Our website here at the radio show, available for all ages, 21 plus or below, GuyBensonShow.com. Our podcast is free on demand every day when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, bonus content on our social media feeds, at GuyBensonShow on Twitter and on Instagram. As we enter our final hour of today's program, we welcome back KT McFarland former Deputy National Security Advisor under President Trump. She's worked under four presidential administrations. She's the author of Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. And, KT, as always, a pleasure. Welcome back. It's a pleasure and an honor for me, too. Thank you, Guy. KT, before we get to U.S. foreign policy and the latest pronouncements from the president, I do want to take this opportunity with you. As I mentioned in your intro, you have served four different presidents, of course, The queen, who just passed away over in the U.K., served and reigned for more than 70 years and met almost every single American president along the way. She has been one of the greatest champions and torch bearers for the special relationship between our two countries. And as she's laid to rest today in the funeral that so many people watched earlier, I wonder what your thoughts are about Queen Elizabeth II and her legacy. Well, you know, two things, um, and you're kind to say that I, you know, my mystic cords of memory go back 50 years in government service. But during the Ford administration, I was an aide to Henry Kissinger, and the Queen came to the White House. The Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh came to the White House, had an official dinner, and a number of us junior aides were allowed to come in at the very end. Um, during the um, after the dinner, there's always entertainment a pianist or a singer or some kind of American entertainer. And as I watched the pictures um, of the queen being presented by president Ford to a number of American dignitaries, there was one that stuck in my mind. And that was when the queen met uh, Cary Grant. Now Cary Grant at the time was just the iconic actor who, who just personified elegance and, British upper class accent, and he was he was just the heartthrob rock star for decades. And when he met the Queen, she had just the most cheerful chuckle on her face. He bowed before the Queen because he was a British subject. He had been born in Britain. I think his name was Archie something or other, but he had been born to a working class family. And I remember thinking at the time, who's more excited here, um, <laughs> Cary Grant, who if he stayed in England would never have been this iconic movie star of a gener- for generations. He would have been Archie somebody or other and probably maybe working in a tailor shop, which is what his father had done. But he comes to America, realizes the American dream, and he's a superstar. And yet I'm looking at the queen thinking, you know, I think she's more impressed to be meeting him than he is with her. And to me, it just, pers- it just sort of typified, where's America? Land of opportunity. Be anybody you want to be here. You recreate yourself. And yet here he was, still enormously respectful of the country that that he came from and the queen and what she represented. So fast forward another couple of administrations, and I was in the Reagan administration in the 1980s. I was an aide to the Secretary of Defense, Casper Weinberger, and 
you know, for a woman was, was had a pretty high up job in the Reagan administration. The American ambassador to Great Britain at the time, um, Prince Charles had just married Diana. She had just had William as the baby. And the American ambassador decided he was going to throw a small dinner party to introduce the Prince and Princess of Wales, um, Prince Charles and Princess Diana, to a number of age contemporary young Americans. So I was selected as the person to represent the U.S. government. Oh, wow. And there was a dinner party of about, I don't know, 30 or 40 people. There were maybe four or five tables. And I was sitting next to the Prince of Wales. And he knew I'd, I'd been at the Pentagon. And, you know, I thought it was going to be just normal chit-chat about this or that. But he bore down and said, talk to me about the missile defense program that President Reagan has proposed. Talk to me about the military modernization and he was so well informed. I was stunned. And he knew as much about it as any military expert did. And he wanted to talk about it, not in a superficial way, but in a very substantive way. He wasn't judgmental. He wasn't saying this is bad or this is good. He just wanted information. And I remember coming back thinking, you know, someday he's going to make a very good king because he's going to do his job. He's going to read his brief. He's going. To, he's not going to be a, you know, playboy party guy. He is going to be a very sober, responsible man. And I think that's what we've all seen in the last week is the new king is someone who is going to do an amazing job following an extraordinary, iconic woman. Well, I could not have asked for a better answer than what you just gave. Uh, what a very cool set of stories, one about her, one about him. I appreciate you walking down memory lane with us, KT, on that. Meanwhile, to the present, and the United States and our president, Joe Biden, gave his first interview on American television since February. It was 60 Minutes. It aired last night. I guess he and the first lady were on their way to London for the funeral, but this was taped earlier. And one of the things that got a lot of attention was Biden was asked again about the issue of Taiwan, defending Taiwan under a potential Chinese attack, and we've now seen this a few different times, KT, where he says something, a fairly definitive, not even fairly, a very definitive answer that gets kind of walked back by the White House minutes later. Let's just start with what he said under questioning from Scott Pelley, CBS News, cut 14. What should Chinese President Xi know about your commitment to Taiwan? We agree with what we signed on to a long time ago. And that there's a one-China policy, and Taiwan makes their own judgments about their independence. We are not moving, we're not encouraging their being independent. We're not, let, that's their decision. But would U.S. forces defend the island? Yes, if in fact there was an unprecedented attack. If there was an unprecedented attack, yes, U.S. forces would defend the island, meaning Taiwan. And then Pelly goes on in the same report to talk about some of the behind-the-scenes jockeying. Listen to this. After our interview, a White House official told us U.S. policy has not changed. Officially, the U.S. will not say whether American forces would defend Taiwan. But the commander-in-chief had a view of his own. So unlike Ukraine, to be clear, sir, U.S. forces, U.S. men and women, would defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion? Yes. Just a straight-up yes there from Biden. So I'm just curious to begin with, KT, as you listen to that, if this was the first time we'd been through something like this, the back and forth, the clarification, the ambiguity, that would be one thing. But it's the third or fourth time on this exact question we've seen this stance where the president says something fairly hawkish and certainly 
concrete sounding. And then aides circle back to reporters or journalists and say, well, our official policy has not changed. Is this intentional in your mind? Is he trying to stake out a position that is more aggressive than the official position? Is this part of strategic ambiguity or is this just ambiguity? I have no idea what's going through his mind. And I have no idea the interplay between President Biden and his aides. I will tell you how the Chinese view this. They view this as a major escalation. When President Biden said, we've always had a one China policy, and then a a sentence or two later says, we're going to defend Taiwan's independence with American forces. Well, it's like he's saying we got a one Taiwan policy. A one China policy meant that it's really what we meant when we did it during the Nixon administration with Henry Kissinger, when I worked for Henry Kissinger, is this was meant to be China. You guys work it out. You work out Taiwan, you work out the United States. We believe that there's one China, and it's up to you to figure out how that works. And President Biden seems to be taking it a whole different step. He's now talking about having American troops, um, American military, American Navy, American Air Force defending a Taiwan in what would for sure be a suicide mission. I mean, that we've war-gamed um, a conflict between China and the United States in, the, you know, in, the, in that part of the China Sea over Taiwan, and we lose every time. I mean, we don't win that war. And so for President Biden to say, well, you guys better behave or we're going to come and defend Taiwan, the Chinese have to look at that and say, really? Well, if you do, you're going to lose. And so I'm not sure that it's, it's really helping, quote, deterrence. It's not making China think twice about anything. If anything, China's thinking, gee, you know, we're not really sure what this guy means, and therefore maybe this is our moment to go forward and depress on Taiwan. I mean, you know, how, we're only a year out of Afghanistan, which was such a bungled military operation, the withdrawal, and, and a 20 years of a bungled foreign war, fighting a war we couldn't possibly win. And yet here we are, President Biden is sort of blithely saying, well, we're going to go to World War III over the Taiwan independence. Now, if he really wanted to help Taiwan, he would do other things. He, for example, how about a U.S.-Taiwan trade agreement? We don't have one of those. That would help Taiwan enormously economically. How about um, a security arrangement with Japan, Korea, Philippines, United States, maybe some of the Southeast Asian countries, um, uh, Australia, New Zealand? How about a a NATO-like military security um, organization in that part of the world to say, and part of this is going to be Taiwan. How about going to international organizations and say, hey, guys, you know, you don't let Taiwan sit at the big boy table. They're not allowed to act as a nation at international organizations. We're going to put our finger down, kind of press down on the scales. We want Taiwan to be included. He doesn't do any of that stuff. Meanwhile, he's saying, well, we're going to go to World War III over this. I mean, I, I just I have no idea what they're thinking. But I'll tell you what the Chinese are thinking. The Chinese are thinking the United States has just declared war on China. In another region, there's the Ukraine conflict still ongoing. You and I have talked about it a few different times, including right before the lead up to the war when people weren't really sure if Putin was actually going to invade. Then, of course, he did. Then the early days where the expectation was the Ukrainians ultimately would put up a ferocious fight but fold. They couldn't withstand the pressure of a superior and much larger force. That didn't pan out. Now we've seen in recent months a bit of a stalemate in the east with the Russians failing in their big objectives. And in the last week or two, maybe three, a real move in the Ukrainian direction, recapturing areas that had been occupied by the Russians, certain cities now back under Ukrainian control. seems like the Russians are kind of flailing over there, KT. Yeah, but let's look at the bigger picture. And you're absolutely right. Your your, um, description of all the things that have happened to get us to this point is completely accurate. 
But let's sort of play this out. Where does this go from here? Well, Russia has infinite resources. Why? Because of President Biden's war on American fossil fuels, it's a simple supply and demand. The United States was contributing to the world supply of oil and natural gas. Certainly, the United States was self-sufficient at the end of the Trump administration. President Biden took away American contribution to the world energy supply. As a result, energy prices go up. As a result, Russia's rich. As a result, Russia can then have the resources to fight a prolonged war of attrition over Ukraine. Now, if President Biden really wanted to help Ukraine, again, don't send in the Marines. Do it economically. Do it where we're quite strong. Go back and have American energy be part of the international energy mix, American oil and natural gas. We could replace the Middle East as the world's dominant energy source. And we could at the same time control the world's energy prices. Our companies can make money if oil and natural gas are at much lower prices than they are today. The Russians need that price high because it pays for everything else. So if he really wanted to to punish Russia or to stop Russia in its tracks, take away their piggy bank, then they can't go to war. When you look at from the perspective of Putin right now, he can fight forever. And if he doesn't have the weapons, he'll buy them from somebody else. If he doesn't have the manpower, he'll get mercenaries. But the one thing Putin cannot do is stay in power if he, quote, loses Ukraine. He knows Russian history. He came to power because he made sure that Russia won a devastating war against Chechnya 15, 20 years ago. He also knows what happened to the Soviet Union when the Soviet Union lost its war in Afghanistan 30 years ago. The Soviet Union collapsed and crumbled. Yeah. So Putin understands that. They're getting bruised, I mean, and pretty battered. And there seems to be some increased chatter and hostility in Moscow, second-guessing, backbiting. It is definitely a very unstable situation. They thought they were going to roll. They have not done so. The Ukrainians back on the march, and we'll be watching it closely. KT, before we go, I do want to ask you one more question. There are reports that the so-called supreme leader in Iran, where there are big protests in the streets again, we've seen violence death, abuse, as always, from this regime, especially against women, but pro-freedom advocates in that country. But there are reports that the so-called Supreme Leader, Hamani, is extremely gravely ill. If he were to die sometime soon, would that change anything in terms of the regime and the balance of power? Or would they just have sort of the next man up and the regime continues as is? Well, he's been dying for a long time. Um, But I think that in this current circumstance, with Iran now being welcomed again by the Biden administration into the international community of nations, being effectively allowed to develop nuclear weapons, whether there is an Iran nuclear deal or not, what replaces um, the the supreme leader is probably somebody just as bad, if not worse, and more aggressive and more interested in Iran taking over the entire Middle East. Katie McFarland, former Trump deputy national security advisor, She has worked under four different presidents, Nixon, Ford, Reagan, Trump. Her book is Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. And KT, as always, thank you so much for your time today. Honor and pleasure. Thank you. And with that, we will step aside, come right back. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Back here on The Guy Benson Show, the sound of bagpipes. 
playing earlier as the Queen's coffin entered Windsor Castle. She was laid to rest today. She passed away just recently, and we've been covering it now for days, at the age of 96 after a reign of more than 70 years, as we just discussed, at least briefly, with Katie McFarland in the last segment. During the funeral, Reverend David Connor offered some remarks about the Queen, including this in Cut 27. We have come together to commit into the hands of God the soul of his servant, Queen Elizabeth, here in St. George's Chapel, where she so often worshipped. We are bound to call to mind someone whose uncomplicated yet profound Christian faith bore so much fruit. Fruit in a life of unstinting service to the nation, the Commonwealth, and the wider world, but also, and especially to be remembered in this place, in kindness, concern, and reassuring care for her family and friends and neighbors. A solemn but beautiful remembrance, not just in the church, but all around the UK. Over the last week and a half, there were real shows of raw emotion the Queen's great-grandchild, Princess Charlotte, breaking down in tears. The new king, Charles III, weeping at the funeral. He left a small note on his mother's coffin saying, In loving and devoted memory, Charles R. The R standing for Rex, the Latin word for king. He is now the king of England. He will not be officially crowned for a few more months. He is 73 years old. The Queen, Elizabeth II, dead at the age of 96, her funeral today in London. The Guy Benson Show continues after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show happy hour. Thanks for being here. Earlier in the program, we caught up with Britt Hume, senior political analyst here at Fox News, talking about the queen and her legacy on the day of her funeral about President Biden and the interview that he gave last night on 60 Minutes, plus the political news of the day. Here's a little bit of my discussion with Britt Hume. Overall, what did you think of the interview? Uh, do you think it was a fair, tough interview that he got on 60 Minutes? What do you think of his performance? I thought, actually, he looked good in the interview. He was very, very well lit and shot. Um, and I thought he came across better than I've seen him in a while. Now, look, I, uh, there are things that he said, which were, for example, he kept talking about how not only we reduced the, uh, the deficit over the last year or so, but we reduced the debt. Well, we most certainly have not. That's if there's right. any deficit at all, we are adding to the debt, and we certainly have in the last two years. And, and I don't know whether that was because he didn't understand that or because he was trying to spin us, but, you know, there were some bad answers. But overall, he looked good, sounded pretty good, and, you know, he was pretty good-humored. Um, so I think, you know, in, polit in political terms, I think it was probably a net plus for him. Yeah, I think the one, the one issue where I would disagree that it was a net plus because it might make its way into ads for a while is the inflation spin, where he was trying to talk about it sort of as good news and, uh, you know, it only went an inch up. And, you know, really not so bad. And, and Scott Pelley jumped back in and said, Mr. President, it's the worst that it's been in 40 years. And he didn't really have a response to that. I'm just surprised that they haven't made a decision in their communication shop at the White House to just lean into the problem, 
admit that it's a problem, dispute that it's their fault, but really focus on, you know, sharing the pain of the American people and expressing, you know, great upset and and anger and determination on the issue as opposed to kind of this gaslighting that he keeps insisting on that i think is a really bad answer that might help fortify certain thoughts about him that'd be very unhelpful to his party heading into november that's just sort of my read on it yeah i don't disagree with that i think you know look i think he's in a deep hole with the public i think it uh, you may have heard me say this before but i think it manifestly the public took a second look at him after uh, the pullout from, from Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and he hasn't stood in the same way in public's estimation since. And these problems that have accumulated since have only added to that. So he's in a deep hole. Um, to say this was a net plus for him means that it was better than it was bad. Uh, more, you know, it was more good than bad, but there was plenty of bad in it. Yeah. Meanwhile, there was one question that I know a lot of people were watching where he was asked about his age and his acuity and that kind of thing. And in a very Biden-esque way, he was sort of stumbling and bumbling over his words. But his answer effectively was, just watch me. Look at my schedule. Look at my energy. Uh, Just watch me. And the rebuttal coming in from Republicans is, yeah, that's the problem we have been watching. I thought more interesting perhaps than that was a little bit of hedging on this question. This was cut nine about his future ambitions. Listen. You say that it's much too early to make that decision. I take it the decision has not been made in your own head. Look, my intention, as I said to begin with, is that I would run again. But it's just an intention. But is it a firm decision that I run again? That remains to be seen. So, Britt, he's he's not fully committing to running for re-election. Part of that is, you know, there are legal implications once there's an official declaration. But typically I've heard Biden confidants and Biden allies saying, oh, yes, uh, he, he very much is going to run again. This was an intention, but not a definitive answer, uh, not a final decision, it sounds like. I wonder you wonder what you make of the way that he kind of framed that response. Well, I don't think it means very much because I think that uh, the Democratic Party has pretty well decided that he's not going to be their guy. They won't. Not many of them will say it publicly. That full interview with Brett Hume and the entirety of today's show available on our podcast, which is always free, on demand, start to finish. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, a hodgepodge of different issues. The people have spoken. Democracy has prevailed. We'll talk about that. A feature in a hotel room that captured my imagination. I'm still obsessed. And a new Coca-Cola product that I tried last night. My review all coming up. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch here on the Guy Benson Show from very northern Wisconsin today and tomorrow. Thank you for listening every day. Podcast free on demand, and we always offer you that opportunity, GuyBensonShow.com. Well, as we get going here in our final segment, a bit of a grab bag of issues. Over the weekend, I got a text message from my best friend, Mary Catherine Ham, who listens to the show from time to time. She loves Bonus Benson on the weekends, the podcast. So she was listening to Bonus Benson, and she had concluded this most recent episode, and she texted me noting that producer Christine was considering becoming a Detroit Lions fan, 
And by the way, Mary Catherine is a Lions fan and a long-suffering one at that, number one. Number two, that Christine had never heard of a Waffle House, as we established last week. And number three, Christine was defending Meghan Markle in that discussion that we had in one of our home stretches. And Mary Catherine, with great love and affection, wondered if producer Christine had ever been so wrong in such a concentrated period of time, just one week. And my guess is probably yes. It seemed like almost sort of an average or normal week from Cookie's perspective, at least from where I sit. And she could have added one more, Mary Catherine could have, to the list of wrongness, sort of the the indictment, if you will. You might recall that we had the discussion late last week about the food product, French fries covered with gravy and cheese. Poutine is what it's called. Producer Christine calls it disco fries. So we did a poll at Guy Benson Show. We asked America what the correct answer was, and America got the right answer, 88%. And this is a blowout. 88% called it poutine, just 12% agreeing with producer Christine's disco fries. So, Christine, I wonder, do you have any rebuttal to Mary Catherine Ham overall? And secondly, will you concede your defeat on poutine? No, I, I'm not conceding. Um, okay, Stacey Abrams, <laughs> go on. <laughs> you know, I was talking about this in the newsroom, and one of my coworkers turned around and said, of course it's disco fries, which leads me to believe it's a possibility that this poll is rigged. I'm not I'm not going to, you know, point fingers, but Wyatt seems to be the one that's doing all these polls. And every time he throws a poll up, I lose. And there's no way that I could lose this much. So, well, I'm just going to, yeah, I mean, you know, there is a way. It's just reality. And I pick my spots when I know that you're wrong. Then I call for a poll. Wyatt doesn't rig the polls. Quiet Wyatt is definitely more technologically advanced than you are, but he does not rig the polls. These are just the people speaking. This is just the people rendering a verdict that you don't like and once again showing that you're incorrect and dangerously out of touch. Like this we're going to be like an attack ad. It's Christine running for office, God forbid. It's like cookie, dangerously out of touch, whereas I am a man of the people. No. I'm going to say this again. Nobody calls it poutine. I don't know who voted or who you got to vote. I, did you just like literally call everybody you knew in Canada and said, "No, hey. this is like no, this is like when the libs lose an election and people go on television or like ranting on social media being like, "I don't know a single person who voted for Trump." It's like you're in a bubble, Christine. You've got to get out of your bubble sometimes. Uh, any response to Mary Catherine Ham? I didn't know that she was a Lions fan. And, you know, the one thing, I do love me some MKH, but, hey, we got to stick together, okay? Women supporting women. Hmm. Hillary says it all the time. Come on. Now, she likes accuracy, and she likes people who are correct. Well, And so that's why she's sort of, you know, on my side on these things. By the way, the rebuttal that you could have had was that the Lions, I believe, actually won their game yesterday. I was just about to say that, that they won. So I was just like a week off. I'm still I'm still not throwing, you know, all my support to the Lions. I think for right now, I'm I'm leaning towards the Bills. I did watch football yesterday. I watched a few games. Boy, that Cowboys game was good. Mm -hmm. The Cardinals game was good. Bills are a good team. I think if you talk to the Bills Mafia, their fan base, they would tell you there's been quite a lot of famous, historic heartache in that franchise and among that fan base as well. So just, you know, 
Think hard. Select carefully. I'll point out that Big Blue, the Giants, now 2-0. First 2-0 started a number of years. So I just keep that in mind. Now, I do want to shift gears quickly here, Christine, because we have a few different things to cover. Did you see the Instagram story that I posted yesterday? I also posted a version of the video on my personal Twitter account, at Guy P. Benson yesterday. It's like a 10- or 11-second video of my hotel room that I had in Chicago over the weekend? I sure did see that. I am obsessed. I can't even tell you how cool this was. So I got to the hotel. It's the Langham Hotel in Chicago, actually right by the Trump Building, right on the Chicago River or right near it. Beautiful location, really cool views. And a friend of mine has a very good connection there, so I was able to get let's just say a slight discount because otherwise that's a hotel that'd be a bit out of my price range generally. But I was there, and I got into my room, which was absolutely gorgeous and huge, and I walked into the bathroom, and the bathroom was enormous. And they have the first thing that you see, it's impossible to not have your eyes immediately go over to what I guess they call a wet room, where it's a glassed-in room that has a tub and then the rain shower from above and then other different jets for the shower but it's all in one space. So they just like refer to that as a wet room, which was cool. It was large. It was very opulent. But what was surprising and kind of weird to me was on the other side of the bathtub was a huge glass window just looking directly into the bedroom. So you're looking out at the bed. You can see the TV. You can see the window looking outside into the city. And there's just like glass separating the bathroom from the bed and the toilet of course is also in this area not in the wet room but in the bathroom and I thought to myself well this is kind of cool and different but what if someone is in your room that you would prefer not to see you showering for example or using the restroom for other reasons like it was a little bit exposed kind of like a fishbowl type feel now I was by myself so it wasn't going to be an issue but I was looking for some sort of a curtain or maybe some sort of a shade that you could pull down or there was a button you could press and the shade would come down and you would have that option for privacy. And I didn't see that. And I said, well, that's a little bit odd. Then I noticed a button that said privacy glass. I said, okay, how's this going to work? I pushed the button and the transparent glass between the bathroom and the bedroom instantly fogs up and becomes translucent but not transparent. Privacy glass. Like, I'm talking about one second after I push the button, you could no longer see through. Then you push the button again, and even more instant, it snaps back to regular glass and you can see through. And like a child, entranced, I stood there, I kid you not, for probably ten minutes, just pushing the button over and over again, and just being delighted and marveling at what was happening and trying to figure out, number one, how do I get this in my life, in my house? I need this. Number two, how the hell does this work? I, it's like, was this a lighting effect? No, it fogs up. So I did some Googling. It is probably uh, a bit expensive to install in the house, but there's a science behind it uh, that's extremely cool. And... I, of course, had to share this with the world. So I posted to my Twitter, at Guy P. Benson. It was up on Instagram as well, although that story has already expired. 
but you can find it on my Twitter. I hope I'm not, like, overselling how cool this was. And some people said, oh, yeah, this technology's been around a while. Haven't you seen it here or there? I had never seen it before. And so for me, it was incredibly cool. And I want to go back to that hotel just to mess around with that button again. Have you ever seen something like this, Christine? Or were you blown away, taken aback when you saw my video? I've seen something like that um, when I went to Miami, but yours was much cooler. I just have to say, I'm married now, so it would be fine if I walked into a hotel with Bobby and this was the situation. But if I was, like, dating somebody and we were on vacation, this would be a hard no for me. We would have to find a new hotel or a new hotel room. Very uncomfortable. Well, until you found the privacy button. I wouldn't trust the privacy button. I don't know. I just – I wouldn't like it. Wait. You're telling me that even knowing that you can fog up the glass on demand – you would reject the room and go to another hotel? 100%. I would not be staying there. No way. I'm confused. Why? Well, what if the button didn't work? What if you're in, you know, in the middle of a shower, your business, whatever you got to do in there, and then like, like the fog just went away? Big problem. Mm. I mean, I, I think that they've worked that out scientifically. And once it works, it works. Like, you can test it. And if it was working to your satisfaction, I just can't believe you would reject such a gorgeous hotel room with such a cool feature. What's I mean, wrong I, with you, Christine? I reject animals. Why are you surprised? Uh, yeah, it's just like, oh, yeah, too good for a pony and too good for the privacy glass at the Langham. That's cookie. Last topic, Christine. Last night on my way all the way up to the north woods of Wisconsin, I was picked up by one of the gentlemen who's involved in this organization that I'm speaking for later, and we stopped along the drive for a product, a product that I needed. That product, of course, was Coke Zero because I need one every day, and we were going to this remote lodge, and I was guessing maybe they didn't have Coke Zero, so I wanted to stock up to make sure that my uh, my daily fix would be met. And we got to this very large sort of quick stop, quick mart type place, and they had a huge refrigerator filled with everything you can imagine, including a wide array of Coca-Cola products, but not Coke Zero. Instead, they had something that I had never heard of or seen before with a blue label called Coca-Cola Zero Sugar Dream Flavored, the Dream World Limited Edition. And it's like got this sort of powder blue label. And then there was a red label and a red cap for the normal version, then a black cap and a black-themed label for the Zero Sugar version, and they didn't have regular Coke Zero. I had no idea what this was, Dream World. I asked the cashier. They're like, I don't know. I think it's supposed to taste like your dreams. It's some new product that hasn't even been fully rolled out yet. I I am just pleading ignorance. It was the only thing that I thought might be or resemble Coke Zero. I didn't know what I was getting into. I only bought one in case it didn't go well, and... With all respect to my friends at the Coca-Cola company, and you know that I'm a loyal customer on my Coke Zero, it did not go well. I opened it in the car. I sniffed the overall aroma, right? It had a very strange nose on it, if you will. And then I tried a sip, and it was just no. It was an absolute hard no to the point that I didn't even want to take a second sip. I had one sip, and that was it. And we made a run into town today, and I got my Coke Zero, which is why I am here and energetic on the air 
the crisis was averted. The issue was resolved. I'm sure they've, like, focus grouped this thing and product tested it. Someone must like the Dream World Coca-Cola Dream flavor. Uh, I am just not among that group. So I give it two thumbs down, but you can always go and judge for yourself. And with that, we are out of time. Back here tomorrow, also from Wisconsin. Same time, same place, on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.